From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In light of revelations this week about abuse in the Catholic Church, we're going to talk about shame today, something survivors frequently deal with, says a former Miss America from Denver who suffered years of abuse. It isn't what's done to us. It's how it makes us feel. And the shame is so overwhelming for all of us. Her story of overcoming. Then, what we're learning about the priests named in that Colorado report. Later, some hidden gems at the upcoming Denver Film Festival. And a chilling mix for Halloween. It's part haunted house, part stage play. And something's definitely off about the actors. I hope that people walk out of here and wonder a little bit if everyone around them and maybe they themselves are possessed. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What does it take to heal from childhood sexual abuse? It's a question many people will face. Exactly how many is unclear. Cases are underreported. It's all something that we were reminded of with those new findings this week on child abuse in Colorado's Catholic churches. Well, today, perspective on healing from a woman who lived with a lot of darkness despite being in the limelight as a former Miss America. Miss Colorado wins. 20-year-old Marilyn Elaine Van Derber. She's tall, 5'8 and 1 quarter, blonde and green-eyed. And at the time, 1958, no one knew she'd endured years of sexual abuse. In fact, she'd even suppressed the memory of what her father did to her nightly from the age of 5 to 18. The trauma was so severe that I did what many children do. In order to survive, I split. It's called dissociate. I split into a day child and a night child. I had no knowledge of the night child. Then, in 1991, she began sharing her story in drips and drabs until it became headline news. And since then, Marilyn Vanderbur has dedicated her life to helping other survivors of sexual abuse. She's the subject of a new documentary called Miss America by Day, based on her memoir of the same name. And Marilyn, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. I want to explore this idea of the day child and the night child. Uh, You were born and raised in Denver. What was the day child version of you like? I understand you really didn't picture yourself a pageant type. No, I did not. (laughs) I excelled in everything I tried. Um, I needed to be the best. I did not know that that was being caused by my subconscious, which was I, I was very ashamed of. I, I didn't know what was driving me, but I was driven, and I excelled in sports, in academics. I was as perfect a child teenager as you could possibly find. How do you understand that need for perfection today? I don't need to be perfect anymore. My subconscious was driving me to be perfect because this part of me that I had shut down for, well, I was 24 when my memories came up. So I had shut the nighttime of my life down until I was 24. As I said, this abuse started when you were five. There's a scene in the documentary that deals with your mother, how you knew she knew that this abuse was going on at the hands of your father. Tell me about what you call her choice in this. I'm guessing I was... 11 or 12, and my father, unfortunately, my bedroom was above the garage door, so I would hear the door go around 9 o'clock at night. 
I would wait for the door to go up, and I would hear the door go, and then you just wait, and you wait, and you wait. Some nights, the nights he didn't come were as hard as the nights he did come. There was a hypervigilance. A hypervigilance that I still live with. I'm still hypervigilant. But one night, it was around maybe 11 o'clock at night, and we didn't hear my mother coming down the hall because it was carpeted. But when she came down the three linoleum steps, we heard the first step, and then it just seemed forever the, the second step. And when she hit the first step, everything stopped. And everybody knew what everybody was thinking. She came down the second step. She came down the third step. Just eight more steps. She was going to open that door, and this was going to end. She would rescue you from she, your father. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when she got down to the third step, there was just this long, dramatic moment And then we heard her going back up, and I knew that she would never come through that door, and she never did. She made a choice, and she did not choose me. She chose your father. She chose her perfect life, and there's a difference in that. Hmm. She had the perfect family. We were four daughters, two years apart, um, and she had this perfect world that she lived in. You were the youngest. Did your father abuse your siblings? I don't talk about my two middle sisters, but my elder sister, Gwen, yes. It went on in her home for 18 years. And I have reporters say, did your mother know? It went on in her home for 18 years. Of course my mother knew. When your own daughter turned five, something happened. What? And help us explain the timing. I was 39 years old, and I came home from a speaking tour. I, I was a motivational speaker, still am. And, sorry, I need a minute. I came home from a speaking tour, and I felt a strange, compelling urge to lie down, as if a huge magnet were drawing me down. I can never remember falling asleep without medication, so... Going to bed during the day was something I would never do. Nighttime was never safe. Nighttime was never safe. So I take medication for sleep, or I lie awake in a very deep rest, which I've done thousands of times. But this magnet drawing me down, I went back to my bedroom and laid on the bed, and I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. And Larry comes home, and he's calling for me, calling. Would never think, ever think to look in the bedroom. Your husband? Comes in the room, yes. And... He called the doctor. The doctor came to our home in those days. (laughs) And by the time he got there, I was up walking around. Happened the next night. The third night when he came, he said, take her to the hospital immediately. I was hospitalized for the better part of three months. They could find nothing wrong. Went to the Mayo Clinic. They could find nothing wrong. Came back to the Denver hospitals. And one of my doctors was my uncle by marriage. And as four doctors were leaving, saying, I'm so sorry, we can't find anything wrong, my uncle, who was just devastated he couldn't figure it out, came back in the room and he said, you know, my darling, I wonder if this has anything to do with your turning 40. Perhaps a Miss America could not age gracefully. (laughs) (laughs) He was right on it. It was because of age, but not my age. Our daughter Jennifer was turning five. Your abuse had begun at five. 
And your daughter turning that age is obviously uh, a trigger, a reminder. And as her age began to trigger the memories coming up, I am using every ounce of energy I have to push them down. And I was in paralysis in and out almost from Jennifer's age 5 to age 18. So in this documentary, you talk about the journey to heal from the abuse and your search for someone who'd been down the same road. What I needed most of all was to find just one woman who had survived the reliving of the memories and the feelings. If I could find just one woman, I'd know it was possible. I never found her. This is so interesting. Finding one woman who survived the reliving of the experience. What happened as a child and much harder as a teenager, all the feelings that I had, I had to bury them. I tried to stay as still as I could. Over a 13-year period, I never once said a word to my father. Never. I just tried to say as still as I could. And then he would literally pry me open. Well, all of those feelings were just stuffed But when you bury feelings alive and something triggers them, then they come up as if it's happening in real time. And I didn't know if anyone ever came through it. Maybe I would just always be that way. And when I was 51, I realized I hadn't sobbed for a couple of weeks. Hmm. Um, My anxiety was getting much less. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to go back. I had just been named before my life shut down as the outstanding motivational speaker in America. I'm going to go back to my speaking. But as I thought about that, I felt like a Vietnam soldier who who was imprisoned. And he got out, and he's getting on an airplane, getting ready to go home to his family. And he realizes he has information that can help the others. And so he knows he has to go back. And I knew I could never go back to my other life again. So I went to the Kemp Center. They set up a survivor program, but my name was not going to be used. I was going to help, but no one, my shame was just, the shame is just overwhelming. When I was on the cover of People magazine, it says Miss America overcomes not rape, not incest, shame. Miss America overcomes shame. That's what it's about. So I didn't want anyone to know what I was doing because nobody could know about that. Letting go of shame is a huge theme in this documentary. My name is Marilyn Vanderbrattler. I survived incest from age five to age 18, and I feel no shame. I have no shame. I have no shame. And that became my talk. Why did that become your talk? Because that's what the issue is. It isn't what's done to us. It's how it makes us feel. And the shame is so overwhelming for all of us. I I believe when I disclosed to my daughter when she was 13, I truly believed she would not want me to be her mother anymore. Hmm. I knew, I'm 82 and this is still hard to say, I knew when I told Larry the truth, I believed he would never, ever want to speak to me again. That's the shame that we live with. Uh, And yet, of course, your husband Larry and your daughter not only didn't 
feel shame on your behalf, but they were incredibly proud of you for speaking up about what happened. In light of revelations this week about abuse in the Catholic Church in Colorado, we're hearing from Denver's Marilyn Vanderbur, a former Miss America. For 13 years, from age 5 to 18, she was molested by her father. At first, she'd planned to work with survivors behind the scenes, but that changed in 1991 when her story became public and grabbed national headlines. The public reaction was not initially all that supportive at times. I mean, you found out people were calling into radio talk shows in Denver asking if you should even be believed. Oh, this is what was life-changing for me. So the third day my story was public, um, my sister had come forward and I had pleaded with her not to do that. I didn't want to be on the front page anymore, but she came forward. And I just said to Larry and Jennifer, this is just overwhelming. I need to get out of here. So we went to the track And we started jogging around the track, and the woman with her two dogs came, and she stopped me, and she said, Marilyn, we're so proud of what you're doing, and I'm so grateful your sister Gwen came forward this morning. And I said, really, why? And she said, because yesterday, on one of our most popular radio talk shows, people were calling in and saying, why should we believe her? Now that your sister has come forward, they will have to believe you. I was stunned. I looked at her and I said, if people are not going to believe 53-year-old me, then who is going to believe a child? And that is what changed my life. I went home. I called the newspapers, called the TV stations. I said, let's go to work. You mentioned in this film the feelings around sexual abuse. Of humiliation and degradation and anger and pleasure. That was the hardest one. All of those feelings, I just stuffed them somewhere. Uh, Your documentary has made me want to share um, that I was molested as a kid uh, by a babysitter. The memories are a little fuzzy. The shame I carried around for so long was connected to the sexual arousal I felt. It's really hard to talk about. I don't hear it discussed much. But you feel then like you are to blame or that uh, that you deserve it or something like that, if there's even a, a, a vague sense of arousal. Do you mind sharing a few thoughts on that? I'd love to hear your thinking. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Thanks. Yes, um... This is hard for me to talk about as well. It's one of the reasons I wrote a book. I'm not sure I could have done my book on audio. Um, The purpose of of every night was my father father winning. I tried really hard to never let my body respond. Mm -hmm. And that was his goal of the evening. So it was a... It was a fight every time he came in. Yeah, that's about power. Oh, absolutely. It's mm-hmm. about power. Mm-hmm. But the shame that I felt when he won is obviously still difficult for me to talk about. Do you still think you have shame about it? No. I don't. Mm-hmm. No, but I'm 82. <laughs> and I... No, I I would say when the newspapers 
put my story on the front page. It was really the press that changed everything. They never said, Marilyn alleges. And my father had been an extremely well-known philanthropist. It was named the, uh, his name was on the Boy Scout building. He was the head of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Trustee. You know, he was just very highly recognized. And the press never questioned. They just said, she's a woman of courage. And survivors are reading the paper and saying, really? Well, if they're going to call her a woman of courage, then maybe, maybe I can be believed. Maybe I can come forward. And we had thousands of men and women coming forward. We held a meeting two weeks after my story broke the first time, and we held it at Montview Presbyterian Church, where I had grown up. Uh, it seats 1,100 people. I thought there'd be maybe 200. Walked in 1,100 people, mm. all with their heads down, all in shame. And that has shifted that I'm happy to say that that has shifted. Now when I walk into a ballroom or an auditorium, the lights are on, the heads are up. I do always ask survivors to stand, and it stops your heart. As you see in a room of 600 people, if you see 250 people or 300 people begin to stand, and everybody knows nobody, they're going to be the only ones standing. And you see this mass of people stand and have them look at one another and say to themselves, oh my, I had no idea that the woman sitting next to me that I drove here with. Um, it is always the high point of my presentation, and it is the most educational part because every single person in that room now becomes aware of how common this is. Mm -hmm. You eventually confronted your father. I did. Um, when I was paralyzed for so many months, I had a lot of time to think. And one of the things I knew I needed to do was confront my father. The word confront... Um, I knew I needed to talk to my father. Mm -hmm. My anger had not, fortunately, my anger had not come up yet. But I knew because I had never spoke, we had never spoken of it ever. Um, I had never acknowledged it ever. I knew that I needed to talk to him about it. And so I called him. I said, I need to talk to you. And he said, come on over. My father terrorized us as children. So there was some fear. He came into the breakfast room, sat down, and I said, this is, um, this is the most difficult thing I've ever done. And he said, I'll be back in a minute. And he went up the staircase two by two, came back immediately. There was never a doubt in my mind. I knew he had a gun. I didn't think it. I didn't wonder it. I knew he had gone to get a gun. What did you think his intention was? If I had come in anger or to say, I'm going to expose you, uh, he would have used the gun. Would he have killed both of us? That would not have surprised me. Would he have killed himself? That would not have surprised me. Um, knew the gun was there. 
and we had a conversation. He did say, if I had known what it would do to you, I never would have done it. And for 16 years, from age 40 to age 56, I clung to this shred of hope that maybe if he'd known, he wouldn't have done it. But when I was 56, I received a letter from a woman in Denver who told me that my father had sexually violated her about 20 times when he was 75. He died of a heart attack at age 76. He never stopped. They don't. They don't. I was the youngest daughter. It never, ever occurred to me that he would continue doing that. It just never went through my mind. Perpetrators don't stop. Has one, I'm sure. But generally speaking, I did massive research before I wrote the book. They just don't stop. Finally, Marilyn, if you had never talked about what happened to you openly, what what do you think would have happened to you? I could not have not spoken about it. That's not even a road I can imagine. Hmm. My life has been such a gift. If I had not gone to the bottom of the deepest well, survivors would not turn to me. Because survivors know that my journey was really hard, they turn to me, and four to six hours every day I answer emails. Um, People email me from, I've had an email from China, from the Netherlands, from around the world because of YouTube. I'd say, how did you hear about me? YouTube. Marilyn, thank you for sharing your story and for creating the space for others to do the same. Thank you for inviting me. Marilyn Vanderburgh of Denver is a motivational speaker and survivor of sexual abuse. She works with organizations like the Colorado-based Wings Foundation, which has resources on its website, wingsfound.org. I've just tweeted a link at CPR Warner. The new documentary about Vanderburgh is called Miss America by Day, and it'll screen in select Colorado cities soon. new details about dozens of priests in Colorado who've been accused of sexual abuse over the past 70 years. Many of the names outlined in a 260-page report this week uh, were already known through legal cases and media coverage, but not all of them. CPR's Allison Sherry and Andrew Kenny join me. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having us. Andrew, you've been looking at two prominent Denver priests whose alleged crimes are detailed in the report. One of them co-founded Samaritan House, a well-known homeless shelter in Denver. Tell us more about him. His name was James Rasby, and he was also one of the most visible priests in Denver because for 20 years, he was the rector of Cathedral Basilica on Colfax Avenue. It's called the Mother Church. Uh, Almost anyone could recognize that landmark. And the allegations against him included a 1975 report from a 13-year-old boy who said that Rasby had fondled him. And in 1990, a second victim said that Rasby also had kissed him on the lips and abused him. Neither of those incidents were reported to police at the time. 
Uh, the other priest that you've been looking into is Lawrence St. Peter. I understand that he was a well-known administrator in Denver's Catholic schools. Yeah, and in fact, St. Peter also served as acting archbishop for a time, which shows you just how central he was to the administration, to the leadership of the church in Denver. He was so highly placed that he had direct access to his own files. There's a strong suggestion in the report that he was actually able to edit his own personnel files to potentially remove some of the reports that were cropping up over a period of decades about him. What was Lawrence St. Peter accused of? His files reflected sexual abuse in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s even, and the allegations included rape. To be clear, both of the men we've just discussed are dead. That's right. St. Peter died in 2003 and Rasby died in 2014. But they were a big presence here in Denver. Uh, Speaking to Catholics, whether they were parishioners or even in the leadership, those names are both known. And I even ran into a gentleman who had had both of them as kind of priest figures in his life growing up here in Denver. Yeah. What have you heard as you've discussed this with folks? Well, for that man in particular, there was uh, a natural skepticism that came, which is understandable because these are people who had such an aura, such a leadership position that at first this guy was not ready to believe it. But the report makes clear that for St. Peter, at least, within the church, his behavior was an open secret in the 70s even. Sounds like there's a pretty good body of evidence that he did do this stuff. So I guess I feel lucky that it wasn't me that was involved in it. Hmm. I understand there's another priest from Pueblo. We have to remember this is three dioceses in Colorado. Um, And in in Pueblo, there was someone who was well-known, a former state senator. That's right. His name was Bino, and he was a state senator through the 80s. Allison, you've been looking into the legal issues here. Did the church always follow the law? Well, the short answer is no. The church did not follow the law. The state law changed in 2002, which would have required, which requires church officials to report all child abuse sex claims to law enforcement. And they didn't. Um, At that point in 2002, one of the most prolific serial offenders was still alive. Um, His name was Reverend Robert White. There were abuse claims sort of pouring in in those years. That was when this became a real national story starting Mm. in Boston and, and it went everywhere. And there were abuse claims pouring in. And up until he didn't die until 2006, the church could have reported those abuse claims to law enforcement, and they didn't. So this lack of reporting, uh, did it potentially expose more children to abuse? Yeah. I mean, the report says over the course of 50 years, um, it did, because it took the church an average of 19 years to take action on a priest after an abuse claim was reported. And during those, like, 19 years, um, and that's an average of every priest, you know, who who was a perpetrator, 100 additional kids were abused. Hmm. And I also want to point out that in that 2000s, after that 2002 law passed, 25 of 39 cases of abuse were not reported to law enforcement. What does the church say about this? Well, when I pressed the church on this, the officials said they didn't always thought they, they they didn't always think they had to report these claims to law enforcement because when the victims called the church, they were adults then. Um, But they say they've reported all abuse claims since 2010. Now, the author of this report, uh, Bob Troyer, former U.S. attorney, he takes real issue with the archdiocese's failure to follow the law here. And he says he's found sort of a frustrating pattern. You know, the pattern I'm talking about with um, take the reports, keep them close, transfer the priest, 
tell the family you're going to take care of it. Thanks for reporting. You did the right thing by telling us instead of telling the police. Don't worry about it. All is good now. That's a run-out-the-clock strategy, and it worked. This is a story that we will continue to cover. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. You heard from CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry and our new public affairs reporter, Andrew Kenny. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 33 states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana, something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Denver Film Festival opens next week with some big movies and red carpet stars and a lot of hidden gems from around the world. We're going to have a preview now of the festival with Walter Chaw. He's blogger for filmfreak.net. Hi, Walter. Hi, good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Would you refer to yourself as a film freak, do you think? Uh, I, I would certainly. I've been certainly <laughs> referred to as worse. Okay. <laughs> but, so I'll take film freak. Why don't we start with one of those big names, Shia LaBeouf. Uh, he plays the dad in a film about a child star. Think it through. What's your mother got a job for? Just in case. In case what? I don't In case know. you fail. In case it don't no. work out. Yes, man. No. She's filling your head full of fear. I pump you full of strength. Because we're on a team, and I know you got what it takes. You're a star, and I know it. That's why I'm here. I'm your cheerleader, honey boy. And the movie, in fact, is called Honey Boy. What's the backstory here? It's kind of fascinating. Well, it's really interesting because, as we know, Shia LaBeouf, and a very nice job pronouncing that, that name. It's been a, it's kind of an internet meme that people don't know how to pronounce it. But for a while, he kind of went off the rails. He's this sort of child actor. You might remember him as uh, Indiana Jones's son in the fourth Indiana Jones film. But uh, he kind of went off the rails. He went on some drunken benders. He was arrested uh, for a while. And during one of these periods where he was on a court-mandated rehab stint, he wrote a screenplay talking about and trying to come to terms with why he'd gotten to this point in his life. And the result of that is Honey Boy. He actually wrote the screenplay for it, and he ended up uh, starring in it as his own dad. And and it's it's sort of his reckoning with his childhood. My goodness, the childhood of a child star. And even in that clip, you hear the pressure the kid is under. It's remarkable. Your mom got a job in case you failed. <laughs> it's remarkable. And it speaks like so many movies do this year about sort of that e- economic anxiety, you know, that that's become sort of a, a, a bad catchphrase, but certainly out there, the 1% versus the rest of us. Ah, uh-huh. you, you sense a theme in the films this year? I, I, I do. I, I think, you know, surprise hits like Hustlers, the, 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 the Jennifer Lopez strepper movie with Constance Wu, things like that are, are, are all talking about uh, the, the the difficulty of making it in the modern day. I just saw Hustlers. I was amazed by it, that film, which is about uh, this group of exotic dancers uh, during the downturn. Yeah, it's it's an it's extraordinary film. And, and like Honey Boy, it's directed by a woman, which is also a great leap forward. Uh, Honey Boy is the feature directorial debut of an Israeli director. Um this is the Denver Film Festival's, I think, 42nd year. What what would you say sets it apart this year? Uh, well, 
a, a sad thing. One of their major pro, main programmers, Britt Withy, died over the course of the last year. I, I knew Britt a little bit. I wish I was a better friend to him, but he was a remarkable guy. He died uh, in a car accident. Eh? He did, yeah. a, a, a single car accident. And uh, no one ever had a bad thing to say about Britt. And, and so this year is sort of a tribute to him. Uh, there, there's a whole section of films that were programmed by him, including a couple of movies that he'd been trying to get for a couple of years. We finally got them this year. I see. So his uh, imprimatur is very clear on this year's festival. Absolutely. And, and he's really left a stamp on the Denver film community. I, I think, you know, he is already sorely missed. Along with that Shia LaBeouf movie, Honey Boy, there are a couple of other big movies coming. The festival opener is called Knives Out. This is an all-star cast. Chris Evans, Tony Collette, Daniel Craig, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes, uh, it's directed by Ryan Johnson as well, the gentleman who uh, directed a, a little independent movie called Star Wars The Last Jedi a, a couple of years ago. Um, it, it's a tribute to Agatha Christie. It's a, it's a, it's one of those old-fashioned mysteries, uh, kind of and, like a clue. Well, yeah, I, 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 th- I think yes, yeah, very much so. Huh. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very fun. Do you get skeptical when there are that many stars packing one film? Aren't those kind of notoriously troublesome in Hollywood? Well, yes and no. I, I mean, I. I... I, I don't think we've seen something this star-studded for some time. Uh-huh. So I'm actually kind of excited. And, and you know, you have little character guys like Chris Evans. Uh, some would know him as Captain America and Michael Shannon in this film. So so top to bottom, there's a lot of interesting personalities. They're, they're not just big stars. I get overwhelmed with film festivals because there's just so much to choose from. And there's kind of that FOMO, that fear of missing out. Like, what if I'm in this theater and something else better is playing in another? How do you navigate it all? Well, I think you really have to go in with a strategy, especially for a festival like Denver's, which has 250 different films. You can either attend all the big red carpet gala events for which Knives Out is a part. Yeah. Or you you could decide to choose things that you don't think are going to open in the multiplex in the next couple of weeks. Ah, Uh, that's a good strategy. The things you won't see elsewhere. Indeed. And I think film festivals are some of the last spaces where you can see some of these films in sort of an environment with like-minded folks. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Walter Cha joins us for a preview of the Denver Film Festival. Uh, you wrote a preview of the Festival for Denverite, now part of CPR News. And in that article, you pointed to a film called Daniel Isn't Real. He's weak. He's lonely. And he's nothing without me. Oh my goodness. Sounds a bit ominous. What what is this film about? <laughs> Daniel isn't real. Uh it, it's a really great new horror film by a young director named Adam Egypt Mortimer. Essentially, a, a young boy is traumatized by some things he's seen as a kid, so he invents a, a, an imaginary friend named Daniel to deal with it. But then Daniel gets into mischief, gets him into mischief, and gets locked away. Later, as an adult, he experiences another trauma, and his imaginary buddy escapes. And so um, it, 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 it's this split personality thing. Daniel, the imaginary friend, is played by Patrick Schwarzenegger. Um, yes. Son of, uh, son of? Son of Arnold, yeah, yeah. in fact. And he's been sort of carving his own uh, uh, niche through Hollywood. He's not the uh, you know muscled-out action freak his dad was. But uh, he, he plays the imaginary friend as, as something maybe uh, – Maybe a little demonic. So if you're into the Halloween season, a really innovative, different, disgusting uh, horror film, Daniel Isn't Real is playing part of their midnight show this, huh. this year. Did you have an imaginary friend as a um, kid? I, I can't talk about. I, I'm, le- I'm legally bound from talking about <laughs> 
Okay, another film you highlight is from China. It's called She, and we should be clear that that's uh, as in the female pronoun. She is also a big name in China these days. But tell tell me about She. She is is the product of a 28-year-old filmmaker named Zhou Shengwei. And what he's done over the past six years is do the stop motion animation about a shoe, a, a, a woman's high-heeled pump, who infiltrates the male world of, of business loafers uh, to, 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 to get a job in a factory sort of setting. And it's it, it's vile in many ways and disgusting and uncomfortable, but it also takes on industry and the patriarchy. Um, it was a tribute to his mother. It, it, it is as, as if you were in... Um, George Orwell's shoe closet. Uh, it's sort of huh. this uh, bizarre, indescribable marriage of, of, uh, of Kafka and David Cronenberg. How interesting to have the shoe as the metaphor. A- absolutely. And, and you know, I suppose, you know, language talks about walking in someone's shoes. Absolutely. And there's something so utilitarian about shoes and, and, and even gender um, separate. I wonder if there are people listening who think that film festivals are a bit of a rarefied environment, like not for me. Is that true of the Denver Film Festival? Do you find it to be a fairly democratic place? Well, I certainly do. With 250 films over the course of 12 days, it is such a, you know, it, it, it's as you would like it. It's whatever you put into it, whatever you wish to get out of it. You, you don't can. need this sort of golden ticket to see some of these films. You, you, you really don't. You can approach it that way. You can go to the galas and the black tie events, and those are certainly fun to meet the directors and such, but you can also attend the panels. You can go to these little movies. As You know, for She, for instance, the movie we were talking about, it'll probably will never get a theatrical release in the United States. This is your chance. Why, why won't it get a theatrical release in the United States? What is it about... I use the term Hollywood rather loosely, but that makes it so. Well, there are so many issues involved in it, but mainly I don't think it's going to make any money. And also you can't, you know, you can't make a minute and a half trailer to play, you know, in the middle of a football game to describe exactly what that is and get the right number of people to want to go see it. On the other hand, are forces like Netflix and streaming, are they democratizing this kind of stuff? They are. Um, and the, there's a lot of controversy around it. And it's a bigger topic to tackle than the time that we have today. But but yeah, you know, it's it, it's sort of a golden age for cinephiles in, in that sense, in that you can see almost anything that you want to um, through streaming, through the Internet, through through these connections. Walter Chaw wrote a preview of the Denver Film Festival for our sister publication, Denverite. The festival starts Wednesday, runs through November 10th. <laughs> Halloween, a theater in Aurora that's said to be haunted, is playing up the ghostly rumors. The Aurora Fox is hosting a theatrical take on the haunted house with a show called Cutting Room Floor. CPR's Alexandra McMahon mustered up the courage to check it out. What sounds come to mind when you think haunted house? <laughs> Well, you're not going to find any of that in Cutting Room Floor. And that's on purpose. Instead, Control Group Productions focuses on regret. Like, one of the most terrifying things we could come up with was the idea of being stuck in a regretful place. Yeah, I think we, <laughs> our work is generally fairly dense and... Heady. 
Yeah, thoughtful, heartful, I think, at the same time. But it's not straight line narratives for sure. And it's definitely not like jump scares, guys with axes, you know, haunted house fair. You know, if if that's like the, the fun kid stuff, like what's sort of the adult version of that? These are two of the four directors, Nicholas Caputo and Patrick Mueller. In their take on the haunted house, audiences move through the historic Aurora Fox Theater. There's a loose storyline. A theater troupe is in the middle of rehearsing a play. But from the first moment starting in the lobby, it's clear something is seriously off about this cast. Got to keep your face on. As you stretch it forward, long spine. Let it out. This experimental, immersive show was born after the city of Aurora approached Control Group about a collaboration. The show blends fiction like aliens and military mind control, along with this building's actual history. It's um, definitely an old Quonset hut. Yeah. For sure. And it burned down in 1981. Mm-hmm. From It was an old movie theater. It burned down. And then it got rebuilt as the center you know today. Caputo again there, and one of the other directors, Bailey Harper. There's also a lot of dance in the show. It's funny, actually, when we were first conceiving of the piece, we were really stuck in actually world and we could only make actors. And then dance just arrived because we have this stage and then we have a lot of other things. And you can tell so much without words and the dance can do all of that for you. Having an actual stage to work with might not seem like a novel thing for a theater company, but this is the first time in three years Control Group has returned to a traditional theater. And there have been some bumps. The piece feels cursed in many small ways. Just that it's a a show about a theater show being rehearsed and not going particularly well. And that has been the experience of the last several weeks. Really into it. There's a lot of method going on. Just no no straight lines. Yeah, things that should be simple, proving very difficult. Um, Things like this projector flickering red all night. We have no idea why it's doing that. that, that's the other new. projector running red all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Director and scenic designer Christine Woods gestures to the screen behind her, hanging over the stage with that blood-red glow. Haunted or not, audiences get to see the guts of the Aurora Fox, including a maze of disturbing props and set pieces in the theater's deep storage. Pig masks, a wall of mirrors, even a rundown pickup truck. The cast pops in and out, slowly revealing the likelihood that everyone in the theater may in fact be possessed. By what? That's up to the audience to determine. I do. I hope that people walk out of here and wonder a little bit if everyone around them and maybe they themselves are possessed. I feel like there is a core question of, on the topic of possession of like, of human agency and is is anybody normal or unfiltered by something else? And so hopefully the, the world keeps feeling weird and surreal as they leave. Cutting Room Floor runs at the Aurora Fox Theater through October 30th. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. 
Finally today, I opened the Nextdoor app this week, and there it was, one of the most hotly debated topics. The post read, Stop putting your dog poop in empty trash cans. Take it home. To which someone responded, I agree. Now get ready for 500 comments. Indeed, this reminded me of a conversation last December with Michael Gutman of Fort Collins. He had posted a poll on Nextdoor about this very issue after an unpleasant interaction. As I was walking my pooch, Wyatt, of course, he had to do his business like many dogs need to do. So he did his business, and as a responsible neighbor, I picked up after him. Um, It happened to be garbage day, and I was about two miles from my home, about a mile away from any public garbage can that I was at least aware of, and I saw a garbage can on the curb. And so I thought, hey, I've got garbage in my hand, there's a garbage can, I'll throw it away. So I did. And as I started walking away, about half a block down, I see my dog's ears perk up and look behind me. And I hear the neighbor whose can I had just deposited the poop bag into was yelling at me and said, hey, this isn't your garbage can. You can't put your garbage in here. And I said, well, hey, it was garbage on the ground. I picked it up. I put it into the can. That's where it belongs, right? And I walked quickly away because, quite frankly, this neighbor was getting a little bit heated and I wasn't quite ready for such a confrontation. And as I was walking away, I started to think to myself, was I in the wrong here? Hmm. So I decided to post the poll on next door and let's just say many, many other people decided to get into the conversation. Yes, which is typical, actually, for next door, which can devolve quickly, although there, there has been some constructive feedback. Okay, let me pick apart your story there. You've given us a couple of cues, I think, that feel important to me. One, you mentioned that it was trash day. Do you think that's important? You know, after listening to all of the different comments that I received on Nextdoor, there seemed to be a consensus. And the split was about 80% people saying, yes, they are okay with others putting dog poop bags in their can. 80%? No. And 20%? Mm -hmm. And what I learned from the comments is that most people, you know, after they're listening to other people respond, their neighbors respond, seem to be okay with people putting dog poop in their trash bins if they're out on the curb and if the trash has not been picked up yet already, meaning that dog poop is not going to be sitting in that can for a week. That seemed to be the consensus. Now, of the 80% who said it's okay if you deposit your dog's due in my receptacle, what were their reasons for wanting that to be open? So somebody said, you know, if it stops people from just throwing them on the ground, please use my trash can. Hmm. Another person, it's a garbage can. It will smell. Please leave all the poops in my can if it means I don't have to see another bag of crap festering next to a trail. And for the 20% who said, no way, no how, what were their reasons? A couple stuck out. I think for some people, they didn't want anybody trespassing on the property, right? If the cans had been on their, on their driveway, they didn't want anybody coming up to their cans. Some others said, I'm not okay with it because someone put it in my recycling bin once. And another person said, no, I'm not okay with the dogs pooping on my lawn either. And I don't have a dog. So I think having a dog... And being a dog owner had something to do with it. Ah, influenced people's perspectives here. If only there were a way to designate receptacles as places of safe harbor for dog poop. But you actually have an idea to this end. I do. And I can't take credit for the idea, but it it really comes from the fact of 
consent. And it's as basic as a sticker. If you can have a sticker that says, yes, you can put your dog poop bags in my can, I think we can solve this problem. And those stickers already do exist, actually. I checked on Amazon. I wonder if you've come to any realizations because of of this whole process. You know, I have. In thinking about whether I was in the right or whether I was in the wrong, I think about all the trash that exists in my community, whether it be dog poop or whether it be a plastic bottle or whether it be a straw on the ground. And if we as conscious citizens think about picking this stuff up, I think the next question is, where's it going to go? And if we want to live in a community where we have easy access to garbage and picking up the trash around our communities, I think it's on us to decide if we want to crowdsource our garbage cans. Now, have you had any further interactions online or in person with this fellow Fort Collinsian? (laughs) I have not. I don't necessarily know that it's in my best interest to go knocking on that neighbor's door to tell them the, the fallout. I'll have to consider that one, Ryan. Okay, and pet that pooch for me. What does your dog look like, by the way? Well, he gets all sorts of handsome compliments whenever we go out. He is a Siberian Husky mixed with some American Staffordshire Terrier mixed with some Mountain Dogs. So he is a, a gorgeous-looking mutt. Thanks for being with us. Take care. Michael Gutman of Fort Collins, owner of Wyatt. Gutman posted a poll last winter on the Nextdoor app about whether it's okay to throw your dog's business in someone else's trash. Do you recognize this music? The theme to Cujo. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.